From Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. So I spent Wednesday afternoon listening to a Zoom meeting about a strategic plan. And trust me, it actually got interesting. <laughs> it really did get interesting. And Clark, we were talking about it before we started. And this felt like one of those meetings, one of those hearings that we cover where you're you're kind of listening, you're kind of taking notes. And in this case, I was kind of writing up other, uh, other news that had, uh, that had broken earlier in the day. And I'm listening to the state board talk about the 60% goal. And I I'm stopping myself. I'm saying, Holy cow, they may get rid of the 60% goal today. They may vote it down. They may remove it from the strategic plan entirely. That didn't happen, but it was still a really interesting hearing and a really interesting development and tells you a lot about where we are in terms of education priorities, because how many times have we written about the 60% goal these past eight years? Well, I was just going to say, it it really was an interesting story that you wrote in an interesting meeting yesterday. I was covering the legislature while you were watching the state board, but the 60% goal, just we can back up and explain a little bit about where it came from, but for for years, we referred to this as kind of the state's flag flagship education goal, right, Kevin? Right. It's been it's been the primary education goal in the state of Idaho for a decade. And you know, again, how many times do we write about it? How many times was there mention of it? Um, that's changed a little bit over the past year. But to to listen to the state board want to get rid of this goal. And make it clear that they really do want to get rid of it at some point was really kind of striking to me. So let's backtrack because yeah. I think when we backtrack and we explain what exactly we're talking about here with the 60% goal for, for those of you who are, you know, who just kind of need a, a refresher here, I think then you'll understand why the board is so adamant about going in a different direction. So when we talk about the 60% goal, What we're talking about here is having 60% of Idaho's young adults, ages 25 to 34, holding some sort of a post-high school degree or certificate. That can be a professional certificate. It can be a associate's degree. It can be a bachelor's degree. It can be a master's degree. It can be a doctorate. Just something beyond a high school diploma. We're not close to that 60% goal. We've made some progress. We're at 44% right now, but we're a long way from 60%. And that's after 11 years of this being an education goal for the state of Idaho. And what I heard on Wednesday was something I've heard before, but I've never heard it as strongly as I heard it on Wednesday. State board members saying, we have no control over this. This is not an education goal. It's a population goal. It has everything to do with who lives in Idaho, who moves to Idaho, who stays in Idaho. It has nothing to do with what's happening on the college campuses. I mean, that's what we heard from a a couple of the board members, uh, Linda Clark especially. Um, We heard board members feeling like they've been beaten up over the uh, 60% goal. Emma actually straight up called the goal a joke. And, you know, I've heard concerns about the 60% goal from the state board before. Governor Little hardly talks about it anymore. The state board hardly talks about it anymore. 
But this was really kind of striking, and it came down to a vote. There was actually an up or down vote about keeping this goal in the state's in the state board's strategic plan. It's still there. The board voted six to two to keep it in place. But again, you had two board members vote to get rid of it on Wednesday, and a couple of the board members who kept it or voted to keep it said. I don't want to get rid of it right now. Uh, Kurt Liebich said this. Uh, Dave Hill kind of said the same thing. I don't want to get rid of it right now, but we do need something different. So let's just leave it in place for the time being until we can come up with something, some other way to measure what we're trying to do here in terms of workforce readiness. But let's not ditch the goal quite yet. But it's pretty clear to me as I listen to that meeting, the state board wants to go in a different direction. They're they don't want to talk about the 60% goal anymore. They want to talk about something else. They want to talk about the number of degrees the colleges and universities award, which is an important measure. No question about that. But they also still recognize that they need to do something that uh, acknowledges and, and measures workforce readiness, uh, you know, educational credentials as they align to the needs of the, the of employers, but still, it was it was a you know I, I keep saying it was a fascinating hearing, and it was not what I was expecting. And um, at least on Thursday, I was able to take a step back. I, I didn't write it as a daily story, but I was able to take more of a step back and, and kind of connect the dots here. That here's where we are, eleven years out. It, it it's quite a development. Yeah, it certainly was a, a great read and a good way to kind of put yesterday's meeting into the context of of where everything's been and where it's come from. And I wanted to say we could even back up just a bit further and talk about where the 60% goal came from. It wasn't something that was arbitrary or that Idaho officials came up with out of thin air. Uh, it was part of a workforce development story. I want to say that came out of maybe Georgetown University. Yeah. Mm -hmm. you're, um, you're, you're absolutely right. Georgetown did a study a decade ago about workforce needs that was a that was a guidepost in the state's move towards a 60 percent goal and yet and i keep pointing out that uh, the lumina foundation uh, a nonprofit out of indianapolis has really made this a national goal they, they want a national 60 percent goal they want um and, and they have pushed states towards establishing 60 percent goals or, or, and they they track it they track it a little bit differently but as they track it, only Massachusetts and the District of Columbia have met a 60% goal right now. It's tough to do. Idaho's pretty low down the list. There are only about five states that are below where Idaho stands in the latest Luma Foundation report. But it's tough to get to 60%. I mean, think about the demographics of the District of Columbia and Massachusetts and why those are the only two jurisdictions that have hit the 60% mark. You know, so I don't think it's surprising that Idaho is struggling with it. And I get what Linda Clark is saying about how this is a population measure. It's a demographic measure. It's not, you know, a neat and tidy educational measure. But I'm, I'm going to really be interested to see kind of how this plays out in the months to come. Because, you know, is there a backlash over getting rid of the 60% goal? Is it a... Is it seen as Idaho abandoning something that they talked about for years and have spent millions of dollars to try to get closer to? So I'll, I'll be curious to see if there's 
you know, if there's any kind of, you know, you know, pushback against the state board wanting to go in a different direction. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I was just thinking about it um, in the way that we were talking about it, but it's almost like it took eight years for this to happen all of a sudden overnight, right? And by that, I mean that we always referred to it, you know, when we were writing in Idaho Education News, is this is one of the top flagship goals for education. It was a goal that was really embraced by previous governor, Butch Otter, and his administration. But maybe I've seen subtle shifts or not so subtle shifts over the three years of Governor Brad Little's administration really focusing on the front end of our education system, particularly with the K-3 literacy goals and initiatives that he's launched, and then pairing that with the state's federal goals, which focus on closing gaps. And so maybe... (laughs) Maybe we've seen it slowly happening over eight years, uh, and then just the rubber really met the road yesterday. Um, right, right. So, or earlier know, this week, rather. Right. I mean, you know, we can't ever get into an elevator with people anymore because of social distancing. But I think if you were in an, in an elevator with Brad Little and you asked him, hey, what are your education priorities? What's the elevator talk? I think you would talk about literacy, getting third graders uh, reading at grade level. And college and career readiness, which is, you know, a, another way of talking about, you know, what the 60% yeah. goal is all about, but it's not the 60% goal per se. I, I don't think that in that elevator ride, uh, Governor Little would mention the 60% goal. I'd, I'd be really surprised if he did, because he's not talking about it very much anymore. And the state board obviously is, is wanting to go in a different direction. And I would imagine, based on what we heard also on Wednesday from uh, Cynthia Pemberton, the president of Lewis Clark State College. I think the college and university presidents want to go in a different direction. You know, Pemberton talked about, you know, I, you know, it's good to have a North Star. It's good to have a defining goal here. But this is used as a PR punishment against us because we're not there. We're not close to there. Pemberton is a relatively new college president. She's only been on the job for a couple of years. The same goes for the three university presidents. They're all relatively new. They all inherited the 60% goal. They, they had nothing to do with establishing it or championing it for several years. They, they kind of came along you know, and, and you know, had to try to get uh, get to the 60% goal, but they really had nothing to do with uh, with setting. So I think it's it's a sign of a lot of things. I think it's a sign of changing leadership in education and politics in the state. I think it's a sign of, you know, maybe a realization that uh, what we're measuring here is not really a true yardstick of what's happening in college and university uh, enrollment and college and university graduation. Not really a good reflection of what's happening in uh, CTE and professional uh, professional certification. But, uh, you know, times have definitely changed. And I, I had fun in the story kind of juxtaposing the comments uh, that we heard on Wednesday against what we've heard in the past from Governor Little, what we heard from Emma Ashley, a state board member a few years ago. Times have changed. Sentiments have changed. There's no getting around that. Yeah, and I mean, I wonder how much of it is the realistic of the goal. When I hear about people who are much smarter than I am talking about setting goals, they talk about they want them to be ambitious, but also reachable. And I know that a couple of years ago, 
before the pandemic, you and I talked about the 60% goal on this podcast, and we talked about how based on the ground that needed to be covered to get there, there wasn't even really like the capacity in person in the universities to get there. There's a capacity issue. And there's also just a, a function of time here. I mean, we're talking about 25 to 34 year olds. That's the target demographic for the 60% goal. Well, back in 2010, when this goal was established, you know, these 25 to 34 year olds were either in high school or college already. So anything that you did right away might not capture those, those 25, those now 25 to 34 year olds. I mean, it takes time. If you're going to put money into dual credit in high school, if you're going to put money into college scholarships, the things that Idaho is doing right now, you're not going to see the benefits for a few years. If, if you get benefits at all, if, if you get closer to 60% because of what you've invested in, you're not going to see the return on that investment right away. It's going to take time. So, you know, even before Wednesday, the state talked about, well, we're not going to hit this goal by 2020. That was the original uh, target. Yeah. You know, and then they moved that, that back to 2025 as a target date a couple of years ago, I want to say. Yeah. And... Even at that, it, it's, it would take a lot of time. It would take a lot of investment. It would take a lot of you know, kind of changing of the mindset about uh, life beyond high school. It's, it's, it's a long view to try to get to this kind of a goal. And I, and I don't think people recognize that maybe right away. Yeah, certainly. But, well, when you don't necessarily hit it overnight, especially yeah. when you're you know, trying to set a goal for a, a population that isn't even in the school system anymore. Yeah, you know, to pick on your Giants, probably not a realistic goal to have them win the Super Bowl next year, right? Oh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. You had to do that. You, you just had to. That's... Sorry. Anyways. But, no, it's, it's fine, but probably accurate. And, <laughs> but, there's yeah. a chance, Kevin. There's a chance. Oh, there, there's always hope, but there's sometimes less hope than a lot of hope but you had a really solid analysis piece i, I kept saying the other day but it, it was wednesday's meeting right. uh this week and it was your the thursday was wednesday. the story broke on thursday yeah. so yes so um i would recommend you know folks could go check that out it's under the headline the day the 60 percent goal almost died it's one it's in one of the top spots at the top of our homepage. now i just checked before we turn the microphone on so that's a good report uh, and I'd encourage uh, folks to check it out. Any other final thoughts on that or idea about where we may go next? No, but I think what I would point out with the story is also I try to link back to some coverage we've had already this year on the challenges facing higher education. I do try to link back to some of the coverage that I've done in the past on the 60% goal. I mean, this is, you know, I think I've written two series just about the 60% goal and just about life after high school. And, you know, we're going to work on another one on college enrollment, which is sort of related to all of this as well. You know, my takeaway, and, and then we can move on to what's been going on at the state house this week, but my takeaway is, you know, if you change the goalposts to something else, that's that's fine, you know, that, but that doesn't change the fact that the reason we talk about college completion, or we talk about the number of degrees the colleges award, or, or whatever yardstick you use, the reason we're talking about this is that the state is facing some really serious challenges about 
convincing high school graduates to continue their education in some manner, aligning education beyond high school to the needs of the workforce. Those are serious issues. And no matter how you measure success or, or try to gauge success, this is an important issue. So you can change the goalposts, but you don't change the reality that we've got some serious uh, challenges facing, uh, facing us as a state, facing us as uh, an education system. You know, that's why we've talked about the 60% goal for a decade. And that's why, you know, we, we'll talk about whatever new metrics in the same manner. We'll, we'll cover them as closely as we've covered uh, the 60%. Yeah, it, it's something that we've always really, I mean, we always talk about the intersection of politics and policy, but, you know, there's complicated issues with these intersections of uh, workforce and business needs versus education and the pipeline. And, um, it, you know, we try to, to take a look at the issues and, 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 um, and, and talk about the context and where they come from and how they fit together as best we can. But uh, it certainly keeps us busy and on our toes, right? <laughs> It sure does. Let's shift gears to the state house then this week. And a lot of we're at that point in the session where there are just a lot of bills flying around, a lot of issues that we're we're, we're keeping track of. Why don't you start, Clark, with uh, Sherry Barr's week in the House Education Committee? Yeah, I guess I can kind of start at the end. That was the the most recent news. Was just this morning, uh, a couple of hours before we turned on the podcast. Here we are, February nineteenth. But Superintendent Ibarra is back with a rewritten version of her in-person learning bill. That's a bill that she's been promoting since the session, since before the session began, trying to make uh, in-person learning the default uh, to the greatest extent possible. Uh, she wants to preserve in-person learning uh, for students and families, and that's really uh, her and the committee, the House Education Committee at that level, are very much aligned. And that's what makes this discussion about this bill so interesting, is the committee also wants in-person learning vocally so. He's talked about that every week this session. But the two sides are at odds over this bill. Uh, We talked about last week on the show, the initial version was killed at its introductory hearing back, I want to say, on or about February 8th. Yeah, yeah, I think that sounds right. Uh, That was killed on its introductory hearing Superintendent Ibarra rewrote the bill. Her deputy superintendent, Marilyn Whitney, uh, got that introduced at the House Education Committee on Monday of this week, the beginning of this week. And then fast forward to today, Friday, the the 19th of February, was the hearing on the bill. After about an hour worth of getting tough questions from legislators, the House Education Committee voted to hold the bill for a week until February 25th. That it doesn't kill the bill, it keeps it alive, but it it puts it on a sidetrack. And yeah. legislators had a bunch of questions about the bill, and I think really what it came down to for some of them is they thought it was more about sending a message and the bill didn't actually have anything in terms of teeth in it, uh, that it was just about inspiring a conversation. And so that was something that representatives Gand, Mordaunt, and a few others pushed on they kind of like the idea of in-person learning, but they want they want something more. Um, but a really interesting moment from the hearing. Superintendent Ibarra attended in person as she did last week, um, but state superintendent candidate Brandon Durst showed up uh, to oppose the bill and say it was poorly written and ask for it to be sent out 
for changes. And so he's running for the job. The election's next year in 2022, or 2022, yeah. Uh, Durst has already declared he's running as a Republican. Superintendent Ibarra is the Republican incumbent. She hasn't announced her plans publicly yet. And she was just sitting there a couple feet away while he went through and, and basically bagged on the bill uh, for about four minutes or so there. Um, and, and, and But then she got a shot back in at the end. She said, you know what, saying that we should have done this nine months ago uh, is just mon- Monday morning quarterbacking and we're here uh, today and we need to address this situation. But ultimately, the committee held the bill. Uh, it sounds like there's concerns with how it's written. There sounds like there's concerns about does it actually do anything? Does it actually require anything new in law? Or is it more of a strongly worded statement intended to inspire a conversation? One legislator even suggested maybe bring it back in the form of not a bill, but a concurrent resolution and, and just kind of list some of the things that you think should be priorities. Um, so the bill's on hold. Point. And, and, and that's really interesting because we've seen at the same time, legislators have pushed bills on the school reopening issue that, that whether you like it or not, what, the, what they're talking about doing, there's a pretty clear policy directive yeah. in those bills. The, the, the Brian Kirby and Gan Dumordon bills about reopening public schools, K-12 schools, colleges and universities, pretty clear what they want in those bills, what, what the House passed in both of those bills, what Senate Education Committee approved yep. earlier week, those bills are now on their on their way to the Senate floor for a final vote. I mean, Kirby and DeMordaunt want the school districts, the school boards, the charter boards as much as possible to make the decision about reopening. They, they really want to make sure that this is not a decision being made by the health districts. You know, in, in community colleges, they want trustees to make that decision. Colleges and universities, they want the state board to be ultimately making that decision. Yep. At least you know where the legislators are going with that. And at least you know what their policy agenda is with, with those two bills. Whether you agree with it or not, there's at least a clear focus uh, in those two bills. Yeah, those would actually have, yeah, like a clear mechanism in state law. This is who has the authority. This is who can do it. This is who does not have the authority. And exactly. really coming back to the idea of uh, really wanting, like you said, those local school boards, local charter school boards of directors to make those decisions. I want to say those are maybe like House Bill 67 and 68. Um, yeah, that sounds right. Those, those numbers sound right. And last I saw, they were on the Senate's third reading calendar. They could come up any any day now. Anytime for a vote. So those bills are well on their way, kind of at the final step in the process. Superintendent Ybarra's bill uh, keeps running into opposition or at least barriers at kind of the initial step. Uh, they did get it rewritten, did get it introduced on Monday, uh, but now it's on hold again till next week. The bill's still alive, but it would be. I'm interested to see how next week's hearing will be different. I mean, um, is a week enough time to change people's minds? It, it, does anything change about their understanding of the bill? Are they really waiting just to see if House Bill 67 and 68? And gosh, I hope those are the right numbers at this point uh, yeah, to see if to see if those bills pass the Senate floor and reach the governor's desk. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't know how much will change next week, but the House Education Committee um, this year and in previous years has really shown a desire uh, to scrutinize things 
closely, whether it's administrative rules, whether it's academic standards, uh, whether it's legislation. Uh, you know, Gary Marshall, Representative Gary Marshall, an influential member of that committee of the House Education Committee, a Republican from Idaho Falls, has said he wants clean, crisp language that's in state law. He doesn't want confusing bills or poorly written bills. And so really, if there's a theme for this year, aside from the turf war and the separation of powers, I really see a theme of the House Education Committee applying a lot of scrutiny to most every proposal that's not not most every proposal, but many proposals that have come before them. No, I think that's I think that's true, and I think it's kind of consistent with what we've seen from uh, from House Education in the past. Yeah. So we'll be back to cover that bill next week, um, and, and and let you know where it goes and, and where the other reopening bills go. But that was just one interesting uh, bill and one interesting hearing today, Kevin. But there were a few, right? Yeah, and one that I've been following because I follow the Senate Education Committee closely as we as we've carved up the session the past few years. Senate education has been wrestling with this whole issue of what to do with the rapidly growing virtual charter schools, the charter schools, the virtual charters that took on thousands of students in the middle of this pandemic and now are trying to get paid uh, for the expense of hiring staff and accommodating these, uh, you know, the surge of students. As you, you know, you've covered it on the House side, a bill that would basically set up the mechanism to fund these schools, give them somewhere on the order of $7.7 million, might be less that they need, you know, that number's still kind of squishy right now. That bill passed the House easily. You know, I think it passed like two, two dissenting votes. And then it came to the Senate Education Committee, and by my count, including Thursday, Senate Education has talked about this issue at at least five committee meetings. <laughs> And, and they didn't do it today, Friday, because they just they don't meet on Friday afternoons. So otherwise, they might be talking about it again. Um, the crux of the issue, I guess, as I've watched it on the Senate side, is is trying to figure out a mechanism. I think that the committee is generally in agreement that okay, these these schools took on these added students. There's a cost that comes with it at some point, and this is a good example of it. Maybe that you. You have to make sure that the, the dollars follow the students. I think that the committee is pretty much in agreement that something needs to be done and these schools need to be reimbursed, but they really have struggled with the mechanism of how to do it, struggled with trying to figure out where the money would exactly come from. Does it come from the state general fund? Does it come from federal coronavirus uh, stimulus dollars? Does it come out of uh, the state's you know, public schools, uh, rainy day fund, and, and kind of the mechanics of how you pay these schools. And, you know, do you, you know, change the mechanism, this cap that has caused all of these uh, funding problems. But it's been really, it's been interesting to watch as sort of a policy wonk uh, observer. It's been interesting to watch that it seems like every year there is an issue that just Flummoxes legislators, and they really struggle with trying to figure out how to solve it. And sometimes it's not, it's not the issue you would expect that would cause all these problems. And, and I think for Senate education, for sure, this has been the issue. Um, Carl Crabtree, Senator, uh, Republican from Grangeville, made a motion to send this bill to the Senate floor for amendment, which is always an interesting proposition. And he described it as the bill that keeps on giving. Yeah. And, you know, 
It, it certainly has been. So we'll watch it on the Senate floor. We'll see what happens in the amending process. We'll see if the Senate actually passes a bill, which would then, if it's amended, the House has to sign off on the amendment. So it's been a kind of tortured path for a, a bill where I think in, in in broad strokes, I think lawmakers are more or less in agreement that something has to be done. Something In some way, this has to be addressed. How they do it is still very much up in the air. Yeah, I've, I've seen this bill a couple of times on both sides of the on both sides of the rotunda, as they say, in both legislative chambers. And it's a fascinating debate because, again, we have the situation where the legislature is vocally school choice, uh, pro-family. There's a lot of legislators who believe that funding should follow the students. And that's, you know, what happened in this case at a time during the coronavirus pandemic where statewide enrollment was down. These two charter schools Idaho Virtual Academy and Inspire Connections Academy added thousands of students. And one of the schools talked about how to accommodate those students. I think they hired something like 70 full-time positions. And this cap is is keeping them from being funded for those students. Uh, and some, some legislators are reluctant to remove the cap permanently. Some legislators... Uh, we're concerned about the financial impact being, you know, at one point, like you said, $7.7 million. But it's also this issue that has a history of tripping up the legislature, especially on the Senate side of things, where you've got these these issues that deal with both a policy decision, like a cap, and a financial component, like the funding. And, and we've sure. seen legislative sessions more or less extended over issues that fall in both camps. And there's a lot of deliberation, especially in the Senate, about who should handle these things, what role does a policy committee have, what role does a budget committee like JFAC have, and it can kind of tie folks in knots, right? We've seen it before. And, and yeah, and so a couple of things there, because I think you're, you're, you're getting at the heart of it right now, because I was, I was struck on Wednesday morning, um, the, the policy committee chairs, did their annual presentations before JFAC, before the budgeting committee. This happens every year. Mm-hmm. And obviously I was listening for the two education committee chairs, uh, Lance Clough from the House, Stephen Fink from the Senate. And when Clough spoke to JFAC, he was emphatic, uh, more emphatic than usual. And he's really taken this issue on. And He, he was, co-sponsored the bill. Yeah, he, he co-sponsored the bill that passed the House that's been kind of mired in the Senate. So he is really, you know, he's really hot on this is- issue. And he was very direct with the budget writers and, and said, we have to do something for these schools. You know, if you don't do this, they're going to have to cut staff. They're going to have to cap student numbers. You're going to send students and parents scrambling again, just like they were scrambling last spring into the fall he was he was pretty emphatic and i think he was probably wisely looking at his audience because it's not just that he was talking to jfac you know five of the nine members of the senate education committee that are wrestling with this issue also sit on jfac so they were they heard the the message wednesday morning (laughs) you know again we'll, we'll see how this thing plays itself out um it's 
I would say that odds are pretty good that something gets done, something uh, something happens to try to make these two schools whole. But it has been a uh, it's been a very complicated issue. It's been a very complicated issue, and state officials testified earlier this week in committee that funding has been held back uh, for the from those two schools February uh, school funding payments, and so uh, that you know. After I spent all that time talking about how the House Education Committee moved slowly, this was a bill that they had actually moved quickly on to try and get it in place so that the schools could get paid in February. Um, but the bill has been held up and the and the payments were withheld, or at least cut back uh, for February. The cap was honored. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see where it goes from here. I know that that's one of the top issues um, that we'll have our eyes on for the remainder of the session, which may be about halfway finished now. We could be about there. And, you know, again, I think we, we say this every week, but I think bears repeating a lot of education issues uh, coming up on a daily basis over there. Uh, the best way to keep track of it all is to uh, to check our, our web page. We uh, have a legislative roundup that we publish daily. We update during the course of the day. So what you see in the morning might change in the afternoon. We may have more more bills, more developments as the day goes on. So if you're if you're really wanting to stay current on education issues at the state house, uh, check that uh, roundup on a daily basis and maybe check it multiple times during the course of the day, especially as we head into this you know phase of the session where things really move quickly and really are moving in both both the chambers, both in the House and the Senate, both on the floor and in committee. Uh, there's a lot we're juggling, but we will do our best to juggle it and keep you current on what's happening over at the uh, over at the Capitol. Yeah, uh, that's a big part of our world right now is covering what's going on at the Capitol. But I want to circle back and follow up on last week's top story, which had to do with school reopening and the coronavirus trends overall. Uh, this week we had more developments on that front. Uh, the Boise School Board voted to approve returning all grades. Uh, for in-person learning later in March. Uh, reporter mm -hmm. Nick Strang had coverage uh, from that Thursday evening board meeting. If you want to know uh, the details about their return plan, uh, that's up on the homepage right now at www.idahoednews.org. But Kevin, you covered um, reopening a little bit, but coronavirus trends uh, overall throughout the week, didn't you? Yeah, the other, one of the other things we're tracking in real time is which schools are open full-time, which schools are open on a hybrid basis, uh, which schools are still online only. We have a, a map that tracks that daily. Again, in real time, every week, I will do my roundup of what's happening with the coronavirus uh, case numbers, hospitalizations, uh, vaccine rollout. We have that on a weekly basis. We'll, we'll get you those numbers every Friday evening. Uh, we will have the weekly roundup on case numbers in the higher education system and in the K-12 system. We run both of those uh, articles on Mondays. So hopefully, and a lot of the trends right now are looking fairly favorable. The case numbers are tapering off. Uh, the vaccine rollout appears to be picking up some a little bit of momentum. A lot to watch. We'll be watching all of that, including the uh, any news about variants, uh, the first case of the South African variant was reported earlier today. Health and Welfare reported it. Does not appear, based on what they 
what Health and Welfare came out with on Friday does not appear to immediately have an education nexus. They're not saying much about the uh, the individual who tested positive for the South African variant, but that's another huge factor as we watch uh, the coronavirus and we watch uh, its effect on education, uh, concerns that these variants might uh, lead to another spike in cases. A lot we're watching and we'll we'll do our best to, to crunch the numbers and keep you current on what's happening in the schools and what's happening with, uh, with the trends. Yep. We're going to stay busy and the best way to stay up to date and stay informed with our coverage. It's like you always say, the homepage. Uh, otherwise, if you're on social media, you can find our page on Facebook or follow us at Idaho Ed News on Twitter. Uh, great ways to stay in touch uh, as our coverage continues to evolve. Uh, and like you said so often, uh, what's up in the morning may be updated uh, by afternoon. So good reason to continue to to follow along throughout the day and throughout the week. Uh, but it was a busy week um, and it's only going to get busier from here. Uh, we appreciate you spending time uh, with us this week. We always have a lot of fun breaking down this ever complicated intersection of education policy and education politics. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Stay safe and have a good week.